Hi, I'm Jonathan Burke, Professor of Finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And I'm Jules van Binsbergen, a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to take what we spoke about last episode and apply it to what I consider one of the most important business problems, the question of how do you know when you spend money advertising that you're getting your money's worth? And this is a first-order question because companies spend billions and billions of dollars on marketing. And so it seems important that they find out which ones of these dollars are actually effectively spent and which ones are not. And Jules, I've often wondered about this because it's such a hard problem to figure out. If you spend money on advertising and your sales go up, does that mean the advertising has a positive effect? For sure. And then on top of that, there's so many different places where you're doing advertising, right? There are a whole bunch of different ways of doing it. How do you know that, say, for example, the direct mail you were doing or the online advertising that you were doing or whatever other ways of advertising you have? How do you know which ones are the ones that are causing the sales go up, even if they do? And it's a classic all else equal mistake just to say sales have gone up. We advertise sales have gone up, so it must have had an effect. Because you can't hold all else equal and you don't know why sales have gone up. They may have easily gone up anyway. And so it seems that the tools we discussed in the last episodes are going to come in particularly handy for this question. Try to establish a causal relationship between advertising expenses and sales. And Jules, you know, it can go the other way, right? It's possible you could spend money on advertising and your sales don't change, but it was still effective. I mean, the best example of that is Coke and Pepsi. Coke and Pepsi market share basically stays the same while both advertise, spend a huge amount of money advertising. That's because if one of them didn't, then their sales would go down. So even in the case where your sales don't go up, your advertising could be effective. So it goes both ways. Your advertising could not be effective when sales go up, and it could be effective without changing sales. So it seems to me an almost impossible problem to figure out. And so this is why we're going to ask this question to one of the world experts in this field. Our guest today is the Nancy L. Erdl Professor of Marketing at Northwestern University, Florian Zettelmeyer, who also spent a two-year leave of absence at Amazon where he was the director of advertising economics. And I should also say, Florian is a very good friend of mine. Florian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Super fun to be here. So yes, indeed, Florian, thank you so much for being with us today. So what we'd like to discuss with you is how marketers know whether the money they're spending is actually worth it. That is, is the investment they're making what we call positive NPV, positive net present value? And perhaps a good place to start is to talk a little about the different ways that marketing money is spent. Yeah, sure, Jules. So there are lots of ways, obviously. There are a couple of big buckets. I think these days, a lot of money is spent on advertising. It used to be that most of that was TV advertising. That has shifted a lot. Over half of all marketing spent these days is online advertising. There still, of course, remains the big TV advertising bucket. But there are also other forms of marketing spend, like direct mail, for example, is a pretty popular area. But you also have things like marketing events and other non-traditional marketing campaigns that fall outside of the advertising domain, like attempting to set up some kind of a viral campaign by sending people into bars or things like that. So Florian, to me, the big question is you spend money on marketing. 
how would you know it's having the desired effect? And as we've discussed, there's a real causal inference problem here. There's also been this explosion of data. I mean, previously there was no data, so it was, I don't know what people did 50 years ago, but today there's an explosion of data. How do marketers make this decision given all the data? Yeah, so you're right that in the past, marketing was famous for being very fuzzy about whether its spend was actually profitable or well spent. And there's a quote that you've probably heard. It's maybe the most overused quote in marketing, which is attributed to a guy called John Wanamaker, who was a department store magnate at the beginning of the century. And he said, half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. And so where that originally came from was this idea that, when particularly in advertising, you spend money and you didn't know who the advertising was reaching. You knew maybe what percentage of people were reached by the ad. And then in addition to that, you observed some outcome, which typically will be sales. But again, you could just in the aggregate tell how many products you sold. You didn't really have the ability of tracking from individual user to a particular sale. And as you just point out, what has really changed over the last 20 years or so is that we have much more sophisticated systems that allow us to track, at least for a lot of the online advertising, what ads a consumer was exposed to, and then whether that very consumer actually purchased the advertised product. And so you would think that has kind of solved the advertising measurement problem somehow, right? But it actually turns out to be that it hasn't. So ironically, despite this cornucopia of data, the problem that John Wanamaker describes still applies in a lot of cases. And in fact, when I have talked to CMOs, I often hear, I don't know whether my digital advertising is working. And it seems really unintuitive, but let me try to explain because I think this is really closely related to the title of your podcast. Maybe to start, let me tell you a story about what happened to me a number of years ago, which I think sets this up quite beautifully. So I was invited to a leadership retreat in the automotive industry for, a, for like an automotive supplier. And at this conference, which was like in a very beautiful place, there were maybe the, there were the top 15 executives of the company there, and then there were five consultants, and I was there as the only academic. And the purpose of the conference was to showcase what would be like lo big long-term implications for the auto industry and where the future was going. So you have one talk after the other, and at some point, one of the senior execs get up, gets up and says, and he's very excited. You can just tell him. He has like this spring in his step, and he says, I want to tell you a story, he says, because I'm, I'm really excited because I have we have been able to do something that nobody in the auto industry has been able to do, which is we've been able to close the loop between online advertising exposure and offline sales. And so what you have to understand in order to understand why that's an exciting problem is that the U.S. auto industry due to dealer franchise laws fundamentally separates out the whole retail side from the manufacturers. And so when a manufacturer or others produce ads, the actual transaction always happens at the dealership level. And that makes it really difficult to have, as you would in online advertising, some kind of a link between the ad exposure and the actual outcome. And so what the company had done is they'd come up with this very clever, simple idea, which is when you buy a car, you get a customer satisfaction survey at the end. And what they did is they collaborated with the manufacturers when that survey gets sent out. And then when somebody had bought a car, they would click on the survey, they would bring up the browser, it would read their cookie, and it would put them together with their online identity. And therefore, you could suddenly link the purchase that had occurred with 
the actual ad exposure that had happened to them. And this was possible because this company was in the business of actually placing a lot of online ads. So this is how the link occurred. All right, so this person comes up and he shows this incredible graph where essentially the graph shows on the x-axis, he shows four buckets. What happens when people see no ads? What happens when people see only ads from retailers, so dealers? What happens when people only see ads from manufacturers? And what happens when people see ads from both? And I'm going to just focus quickly on the kind of left and the right side of that axis. So what happens if you see no ads versus you see ads from both manufacturers and retailers? And so on the y-axis, what you see is the sales conversion percentage. So what's the probability that within, I think it was 60 or 90 days of getting exposed to an ad, you actually end up buying a vehicle? Okay. And so what you see is that on the left side, so where you see no ad exposure, I think the sales conversion probability was something like 0.7%, so pretty low. And on the side where consumers had seen both manufacturer and retailer ads, the sales probability was 14%. Okay. So huge difference. And so this executive looks at the data and he says, this, and by the way, this was all Google search data. So this was like Google search advertising. And so what the executive says is, look, this clearly shows that Google advertising really works because, as you can see, the likelihood that you buy having seen an ad for manufacturers and dealers is much higher than if you don't get any ad. Okay? And then in addition to that, he makes the point that the other thing that this shows is that manufacturers and dealer ads are complements and not substitutes because, in fact, the sum of doing kind of the 14% were higher than the 3% sales conversion rate if you just saw dealer ads and the 5% conversion rate that you saw manufacturer ads. So if you add the two up, it's 8%, which is less than 14%. So he said that's evidence for complementary. Okay, so this went down and there was like an excited chatter in the room and people were like, this is amazing. We found a way how to measure how well Google advertising works in the auto industry. And everybody's impressed about the efficacy of advertising. And the conversation goes on and people figure, try to figure out how do we monetize all of this? And after about 15 minutes of this conversation going on, there's somebody at the back of the room who raises the hand. And this person asks, let me ask you a question. And he points to what's that column where, you, where people are not exposed to ads, where you get this 0.7% conversion probability. And he says, so why would somebody not get any correlated ads on Google? And so there's kind of this pause in the room. And somebody says, maybe because people didn't search for a car on Google. <laughs> okay. And say, so, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds about right. And then he points towards that other column with the 14% where people had been seeing manufacturer and dealer ads. And he says, why would somebody see ads for both manufacturers and dealers on Google? And, you know, after a little while, somebody says, well, probably because they typed in a car name like Chevy Silverado 1500. And then probably a location name so that a deal ad would get triggered, like Chevy 1500 Palo Alto or something like this. So at that point, this person stops for a sec and says, so what you're telling me we've shown, pointing to the 0.7%, is that if people are not interested in buying a car, they don't buy a car. And then pointing to the 14% column saying, and if people are really interested in buying a car, they actually buy a car. And that was incredibly good because... What it basically showed is that everybody in the room had missed the point that the people who were in the 0.7% column, maybe those who didn't see ads, and the people who saw ads from manufacturers and dealers were probably fundamentally different people. And they were fundamentally different people because of the fact that Google 
through the search mechanism is very good at only sending ads to people who already have a pre-existing interest in actually buying the product. And so the problem is that inferring from the difference of 0.7 and 14%, that represents the causal effect of the ad is most likely incorrect because there's a fantastic alternative explanation, which is that the people who see the ads are the people who wanted to buy a car in the first place. And the people who didn't see the ads are people who weren't in fact in the market for buying a car. And so the data doesn't tell you how much effect the ad has and how much effect is due to the selection that occurs between people who want to buy cars and not. But it's pretty clear that you can't just look at the data and say, that's the causal effect of the ad. But it's exactly the conclusion that everybody in that room jumped to. It's a perfect example of something we spoke about in the last podcast episode, which is reverse causality. That it isn't, in fact, the ads that are causing people to buy. It's people who want to buy looking at the ads. And this is like an enormous problem for all inference, especially in the advertising space. So how do you solve this problem? Before we go there, let's add one more thing, right? Because it's not just reverse causality. I think it's also an all-else equal mistake. Because if we want to see what the effect of advertising is, I need to do it on groups of people that are otherwise equal, not people that were already searching for a car to begin with versus the ones that were not. So it's actually a combination of the two things. I agree, Jules. As an econometrician, one would call this an omitted variables problem, right? In the sense that we're trying to measure the causal effect of an ad. And we have the problem that what we're not controlling for in trying to measure the effect of the ad is what the characteristics of the users are, and in particular, their pre-existing interest. That is, is the core. The problem essentially is that causal inference requires you that the two groups that you're comparing are probabilistically equivalent, that you can think of them as living in two different universes that are identical, except for the fact that in one universe, somebody gets an ad, and in the other universe, somebody doesn't get an ad. And in practice, we can't clone universes, so we never have a two-universe situation. But what we try to do is we try through a variety of techniques or experiments or other ways to create groups of people who, although they are not identical, they look like they are very similar to each other, which we call probabilistic equivalent. That's exactly right. So how do we solve the problem? How do we solve the problem? Okay, so it turns out the industry has a way to try to solve this problem that uses what people refer to as attribution. And attribution is essentially a heuristic that gets used in order to determine the causal effect of an ad. By the way, the causal effect of an ad industry is called the incrementality of an ad. That's really the word that people in the industry use. So I'm going to use incrementality and causal effect kind of interchangeably. So the idea of an attribution model goes something like this. It's very unintuitive if, you, if you're an economist, but it makes some sense. The idea is to basically say, We're going to look at a purchase that occurred. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look backwards if we observe data on what ad exposures you got. And then what we're going to do is we are going to say, if within a particular window, say a week before the purchase, you were exposed to an ad and you clicked on the ad and it was the last ad you clicked on, then we are going to give credit for this purchase to the ad. So what we've now just done is we basically said, this purchase occurs because of this ad. Okay, and so you can already see that it's an interesting way of doing this. It's also probably not correct in the sense that 
you can easily come up with reasons why this would under or overestimate the causal effect of an ad. So for example, you would say, look, what happens if you saw an ad exposure, but you never clicked? Then you get no credit for the ad. Well, that probably undercounts the importance of the ad. Or what happens if you got an ad exposure and you clicked, but it was outside of the so-called attribution window? So you did it like two weeks ago, but not this week. You would also undercount it. But then you also have a problem that these kinds of methods would over emphasize the causal effect of an ad by saying, what happens if somebody is in the market for a product, they see an ad, and they click on the ad as a navigational shortcut to get to the product that they would have bought anyway. So that would be exactly the situation in the auto industry that I described. But the huge advantage of attribution is that it's sort of a counting metric, and it's pretty easy to implement. And it's essentially an empirical question how well you can approximate the causal effect of an ad with this. What else would you do if you don't like attribution? And very few people really like attribution. They just think of it as a convenient workaround. The alternative would be that you rely on the kind of natural variation that occurs in ad exposure, which is you have a target group of customers. And what you try to do is you compare people who got exposed to the ad to people who didn't get exposed to the ad. Okay, This is the Google ad story that I just described, essentially. And the problem with this is that all advertising providers are very good at targeting ads to people who are more likely to generate positive outcomes. And so you have this problem, just like in the Google ad story that I just told you, that the people who get exposed to ads are fundamentally different than the people who are not exposed to ads. And this creates big problems in terms of measurement because you kind of potentially overestimate the effect of the ad. So the alternative to that would be that you say, well, okay, fine. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start using like a complicated econometric causal inference approach of which Rido Imbens has invented many on your last podcast. And we're going to try and use these sophisticated causal inference techniques to essentially control for a set of observable differences between consumers. But the fundamental problem that occurs is that there are too many things that are fundamentally unobservable when ad exposure is determined. And in order to understand kind of why that's the case, what you have to understand is that, and by the way, I'm, when I'm saying that there are too many things that are unobservable, as I've done myself a whole bunch of studies with Facebook, actually, as an academic, where we ended up seeing to which degree we could use these kinds of methods. And these methods essentially don't work. And they don't work because the selection that is induced that makes people see an ad and don't see an ad by these advertising providers is so strong that the typical causal inference methods that we use fail to be able to recreate an all-else-equal scenario, okay? So where that leaves us is that I think what you need in order to solve the problem properly is you probably need some form of intervention that allows you to control the all-else-equals assumptions that you guys have at the title of this podcast. And what that means in practice is something like an experiment. So Florian, it sounds almost to me like from an experimental point of view, we were better off under the old system with the direct mail rather than with the Google ads that you click on. Because isn't it the case that if I do direct mail, I can randomly send it to certain people and not others. And if I truly pick that randomly, I can actually do the experiment properly. Would that be fair or? Totally fair. In fact, the most sophisticated people historically in marketing have been the direct mail people. In fact, there are companies that were literally founded on the idea that by doing large-scale experimentation and targeting, you could improve. So for example, Capital One, like the entire reason for existence of Capital One 
was the idea that you could start doing micro-targeting and that you could start making very specific offers, right, that solve the kind of Goldilocks, what's my interest rate versus the default probability of a particular user group for very different groups, and that you could test out different creative campaigns and direct mail campaigns and stuff like that. You are absolutely right. So when you go today into a, into a marketing company, ironically, the people who are often the most sophisticated from a data science point of view and a measurement point of view are the old school direct mail people. Today, I imagine marketing has a huge focus on the online data that you collect. Is really the only solution to do this properly is to do the online experiments when you actually do randomly assign people, randomly assign ads and see what the effect is. And if that's the case, I mean, it's a very small part of measurement, right? So we are in a situation where ultimately ground truth to figure out what your advertising, how well your advertising is working, I think does require you to run some form of experiment. However, the problem is that experiments fundamentally aren't scalable because of the fact that there are large opportunity costs of running them, right? You can't target a set of audience that you would like to target. And as a result of that, they're not really a practical solution for everything. So you do have companies coming up with all sorts of interesting kind of workarounds. So one workaround is something like you run a series of experiments and you compare these experiments with the attribution data. And you basically say something like, my experiment says that in this experiment, I generated 300 incremental sales as a result of my campaign. And then the attribution data says, I generated 600 incremental sales as a result of this campaign. And so if you run such experiments a number of times, and you start finding that there's a reasonably stable relationship between the attribution data and your experimental data, what companies do is they basically just kind of put a haircut in. So they say, I'm going to use my attribution data only every 10th or 20th or 30th campaign, I'm going to run an experiment. And in the meantime, I'm just going to use a heuristic in order to figure out how well my advertising works. So that's a possibility. You also have situations where some advertising providers offer analytical solutions to try to do this on the platform side. So for example, a recent development of more sophisticated systems that people call multi-touch attribution model. Some people call it like data-driven attribution, where essentially you kind of run a regression of which ad exposure caused a particular outcome to occur. And that works fine as long as you have some exogenous variation in ad exposure, as long as you occasionally switch ads on and you occasionally switch them off. I think the point that I would like to emphasize for executives is that, so marketing measurement in general, I think of as Dante's seventh level of hell. It's very difficult and complicated. And the one most important insight that I would maybe transmit is that you are going to be in a world of hurt if you think that you can solve your marketing measurement problems by using business-as-usual data. In other words, if you just rely in the data that just pops out of you doing stuff how you normally do it, you're very unlikely to get a good handle on how well your marketing spend is working. What you need to do is you need to be clever about how to vary your marketing spend at either the user level or the channel level in order to trace out what the causal effects are. So at the user level, it could be something like, I'm going to occasionally withhold an ad from a user. At the channel level, it could be maybe in January, I'm going to have a different split between social and search 
than in February, where I'm going to reverse the split. So maybe I do 80-20 social search, and in February, I do 20-80 social search. And it's these kinds of interventions, the idea that economists call this, in a way, taking control of the data generating process. Like, it's not enough to just take the data that exists. you got to create the data you need in order to get good measurement. And if executives understand that, it's going to make an enormous difference in how they are able to measure their marketing. So, Florian, let's go back then to the earlier quote by John Wanamaker, right? He said, 50-50, half of it is wasted, half of it is properly spent. Now, two questions for you. The first one is, historically, do you think that those are the right percentages? Or do you think it might even be a higher number that's wasted? And second, if you're smart about it, like you just said, you think you can get that number up a lot? So I have no idea historically because I'm just as uninformed as to what happened historically as John Wanamaker was. Can you get the number up a lot? Yes, I do, in fact, think you can get the number up a lot. And I think the reason you can get the number up a lot is because, and I think this is particularly interesting in the online space, is that a lot of advertisers at the moment are choosing to optimize, right? There's a lot of optimization goals in this industry, but they're choosing to optimize on objectives that are not necessarily directly tied to how I think of shareholder value. And so I think the industry is slowly getting to the point where they're starting to provide more tools to allow advertisers to also achieve goals that are more tied directly to the causal effect of advertising. But that's essentially what I think you have to do is we need to figure out optimization tools that get us closer. Florian, well, thank you so much. This has been really good. I mean, I think a lot of insight here, and certainly it's a wonderful example of the importance of understanding causality versus correlation. Thanks so much, Florian. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.